2: On this episode of The Tip-Off, we're doing something different. In the Dark is one of my favourite podcasts around, and their second series blew me away. It's an investigation of a cold case, but it's done with such rigour and respect, it really is a gripping listen. So on this episode, we're going to hear how that team of journalists did it. We'll look at how they got a few of their big findings, but I'd also recommend you go listen to the whole series. It really is great. I'm Maeve McLennigan. This is The Tip-Off.
3: My name is Madeline Barron and I'm the host and lead reporter of an investigative podcast called In the Dark.
2: Madeline is about to set out on a journey that will take a year of her life. It will see her scrambling all over the United States and even upping roots and moving house. But she doesn't know that yet. You see, she's just sat down at a computer
3: it all started with an email. So after our first season of In the Dark, we asked listeners to send in their story tips and we got hundreds and hundreds
2: of story ideas. Amongst all those story tips and ideas, there was one email that stood out.
3: There was one that was very short and it was an email from a woman who said that she lived in lives in Mississippi and she said that there was a man there named Curtis Flowers who was on death row and who'd been tried six times. And at first when we got this email, we were, you know,
2: six six trials, is that, that can't possibly be true. But it was true. When Madeline did a bit of digging, she found out that yes, this guy, a man called Curtis Flowers, had indeed been tried six times for the same crime. Six times for murder. And that immediately got our
3: attention because we were thinking, how can that happen? You know, what is going on in a, in a case that would
2: lead it to be tried six times. The man, Curtis Flowers, had been convicted for the murder of four people who were all found shot dead, execution style, in a small family-run furniture store in the town of Winona, Mississippi. Now, that was interesting. And Madeline and the In the Dark team knew they needed to find out more. The first thing they did was try and get their hands on the court transcripts of all those various trials so they could get a solid overview of what the evidence in the case had been. But that was easier said than done. So we called
3: down to the court in Mississippi and we asked, you know, we're up in Minnesota, so we're, you know, like half a country away from Mississippi. And we said, you know, can you send us the transcripts for these six trials? And we were quoted a figure of, I believe, $2 a page. And so we quickly ran the calculations in our head. And this would have been over $100,000 just to get the transcripts. So our, actually, our earliest, our earliest problem like, came like, very soon. It's like, OK, well, we can't afford to get the court transcripts, which sounds ridiculous. Um, and so fortunately, we got them in other ways. But that was the, the immediate thing, was like we
2: couldn't just get the transcripts. We had to find someone who had them. Reading through the transcripts, the team could piece some of it together. The case against Curtis was based on a few different things. See, Curtis had worked a few days at that furniture store, but left when he failed to show up for work one too many times. So the district attorney had painted this as a revenge killing for this slight, this dismissal by his employer. And while there was no forensic evidence from the shooter in the furniture store, there was part of a bloody footprint there. And the investigators worked out that this was made by a particular brand of feeler trainers. Now, in the house of Curtis's girlfriend, they found a feeler-trainer shoebox, though the girlfriend testified that this was her son's, not Curtis's, and they never found the shoes. Then there was the fact that several people were saying they'd seen Curtis near the store on the morning of the murder. And there was one crucial witness, a jailhouse informant, who said Curtis had confessed. Plus, the district attorney, Doug Evans, had told the court there was no one else it could have been, All the signs pointed to Curtis, he said. But then there was also information about how these convictions had been overturned. And often it was because of prosecutorial misconduct, or because of issues with the ways the jury were selected. So there was a lot of things that didn't seem quite right to Madeline and her team. So they didn't know what to think. But what they did know was that choosing to go down this path was a big decision to make. Don't make that decision
3: lightly because once we decide on a project for our team, what we're saying is that, um, you know, five investigative reporters and producers are going to work full time on this for a
2: year. So it really is a big decision. They ummed and uhd, but the team just couldn't get the case out of their heads. Six trials. Something was going wrong in the justice system if this case was just ricocheting around across the courts. So Madeline found herself packing a bag and flying down to Winona with producer Samara Freemark, The first thing they wanted to do was to find and talk to Curtis's parents, Lola and Archie. So they found their number in the local phone directory and nervously picked up the phone. Lola answered. It's Curtis's mother, and she agreed to talk to me. So soon, Madeline found herself standing on the doorstep of the flower's home.
3: Uh, But yeah, that first meeting, you know... Yeah, I think you're just sort of like, you're asking, as a reporter, sometimes you're asking people to do something that's a little strange, which is, here I am, you don't know me, I'm going to start asking you a series of questions, some of them are kind of personal. And like, you should just answer those questions. Like, that's not normal. We don't do that to like people that we run into on the bus or the subway or something like that. You know, that's sort of would be seen as like
2: rude or pathological, you know, but yet that's part of the job. The talk went well. And the flowers said they were glad they were looking at Curtis's case. They didn't go into all the details at their first meeting, but they did suggest some other people Madeline and Samara could talk to. But getting hold of others in Winona wasn't quite as easy. We were having trouble not, not with Mrs...
3: Than Mr. Flowers, but with other people, you know, like, are these people not getting back to us? And we would call people and they wouldn't respond. And it wasn't until we went down there and really like lived down there. We're like, oh, that's just not how people go about arranging things. You know, if, if we want to talk to someone, we should just show up at their house. And that's like totally normal. That's how people do things. But this whole idea of like calling and being like, do you have your schedule in front of you for next Wednesday? Is it is a disaster in terms of
2: actually connecting? Pretty soon the team realized they couldn't do this story from far away. No. They were going to have to move miles from home down to Winona. It was
3: important for us, not just important, but essential for us to live there because there were so many people that we needed to talk
2: to. You see, being in the town, surrounded by these people, hanging out at bars or going to the Friday night football games, Madeline and her team would bump into people. There were people we didn't know we needed to talk to who we needed to talk to. You know, the like work
3: of reporting where one person leads you to another. And also, you know... This is a town of about 4,000 or so people where a lot like, you know, where one person can very easily lead you to another person, lead you to another person, lead you to another person, you know.
2: Um, And that really can't happen unless you're there and you're showing up. So Madeline, Samara and the others in the team would spend their days driving all over town. You
3: wake up in the morning, you've got a list of 20 people you'd like to talk to this week and you just like are making your way down the list driving around. The next day you wake up, you do the same thing and on and on and on for months. And gradually over time, like these facts start to build
2: and things become clearer. The team spent the summer interviewing anyone they could, including the family of one of the victims, 16-year-old Derek Bobo Stewart, who was killed that night. You know, it was important to us to
3: really tell, give people a sense of at least for, for, you know, For Bobo Stewart, the youngest victim, to give people really a sense of who he was, you know, through the the voice of his father, so that it's not, you know, an abstract story. Having a sense of this isn't like a mystery, this isn't a fun story or some kind of who done it or something like that. Like this is, four people have
2: been killed. And there were more interviews, people who knew Curtis, who said they'd seen him that day, but... This was all for a podcast, and trying to record in the field in real life can come with its own problems.
3: You know, we started there in the summer. It's Mississippi, it's a summer. It's, you know, one of the features of uh, audio reporting is that you want a quiet environment, so we're always asking people, you know, unfortunately, can we turn off your air conditioner? Oh, no, by the way, can we also turn off that fan? And is that another air conditioner I hear in the back room? I'm sorry, can we turn that off? And is that another fan? And, you know, like... um, Natalie Jablonski, one of our producers, had, like, had to do the most of this and is just constantly apologising like, as the room got hotter and hotter and hotter
2: until eventually it's like, I think, we, I think we actually have to wrap this up because it's just becoming untenable for everyone to continue. Talking to people in the town, they started to realise a lot of things. Many of those who placed Curtis near the store the day of the murders had only come out with that information months and months after their murder happened. And often the details in the descriptions they gave changed over time. Many only raised the fact they'd seen him there once they'd already been in contact with the police about something else. And Madeline and the team walked the route Curtis supposedly took that day. It didn't seem to make sense. It was a long, rambling, convoluted route that seemed far too brazen for anyone but a completely cold-blooded killer. And through all this digging, there was another man coming on their radar. The district attorney. And the more they looked at the DA Doug Evans, the more questions they had about his tactics, like his record on jury selection. You see, in the US, the lawyers in a case can question potential jurors before the case has started and then argue that for certain reasons they shouldn't be allowed on the jury, say they know the defendant or they have a clear bias. It should be a way to get a fair trial, but things don't always go that way. The power of a prosecutor is something I think that's
3: underappreciated Unless, you know, you have a personal reason to have encountered it. I mean, here is the person who has the ability to charge you with a crime and to take it before a jury and to try to convince a jury in the United States, at least in some cases, to have you killed by the state. That's a tremendous power. And, you know, for the most part, like we, the public, do not pay attention to what prosecutors do day in, day out. There are a lot of prosecutors who day in, day out do excellent work. But we give them so much discretion and we so rarely look at what they're doing that it's possible for abuses of power to happen and no one to
2: even notice. In the last trial Curtis had, the last time he'd been sentenced to death for the murders, the jury had been made up of 11 white jurors and one black person. This was in a county where 45% or so of the population was black. So the team wanted to know was this trial an anomaly? And so they started pulling records looking at every case they could find that Doug Evans had prosecuted. Here's a clip from In the Dark.
3: I wanted to know how often DA Doug Evans and his office were striking black people off juries. Not just in the Curtis Flowers trials, but in every single trial his office is handled, for the entire time he spent in office. But this was going to take a really long time to figure out, because no one tracks this information. We would have to find it ourselves. Clearly, we needed a plan. So I got on the phone with our data reporter, Will Craft, and he came
1: up with one. My proposal is that we go courthouse by courthouse. We get the case file. We see what information is available. Then we digitize all the information. We build a database. We see what demographic information we can get. We create um, entries for every juror. Um that seems both easily manageable and terrifying at the same time.
3: Okay, so this sounds like something that um we should get started on like
2: 2 years ago.
1: Um yes.
2: It was no small task. But the team's reporter, Parker, got on it. She moved to Winona too in September, and she started a long job of calling around all the courthouses to find out all the criminal trials that went before a jury since Doug Evans took office in 1992. The clerks would bring Parker
3: into a room and show her their docket books. And these docket books, they're big, leather-bound books with handwritten entries for every criminal case, every charge that made its way to the courts. It's a huge ledger, humongous. I mean, maybe 24 inches tall and, like, 6 inches thick, maybe. Parker had to scan through all the entries on every page of every docket book, looking for any clue that a case had gone to trial. And so you're just, like, looking through
2: this, like, muddled mess of black script. After Parker had gone through all those books, she had a list of 418 trials over 25 years. And then she found a jury list for most of those trials and the transcripts of jury selection. Exhausted yet? Well, Parker kept going. She needed to copy 100,000 pages. But the courts were going to charge them 25 cents a copy... So that'd be $25,000, that wasn't gonna work. Instead, she brought in a portable scanner and scanned in each and every document. It took weeks. And once they were all scanned, there was another big job, inputting that info from all those scans into a database. For three months, Will went through those and by the end, they had a big finding. They found that over the 25 years of his tenure, Doug Evans's office struck black people from a jury at almost four and a half times the rate it struck white people. The prosecution struck 50% of eligible black jurors, compared to only 11% of eligible whites. It was a shocking finding, and one that could only have been done through all those weeks of hard work. So it's been months and Madeline and her team are living down in Winona, Mississippi, talking to everyone and anyone connected to the Tardy Furniture murders. But there's still one big thing that seemed to point to Curtis's guilt. The evidence from a jailhouse informant who had testified at four of Curtis's trials that Curtis had confessed to the murders while in prison. This guy was called Odell Hallman, but he was known as Cookie. It was powerful testimony that surely had weighed heavily with the jury. See, they'd seem to believe Cookie. Why wouldn't they? Doug Evans had presented him as a credible and trustworthy witness. But just how trustworthy was he? Madeline wanted to find out. So they tracked Odell down. It turns out he was in prison, but he had a contraband cell phone, and he started to talk. What's up? Are you there?
0: Yeah, I'm behind my tent.
3: Behind your tent?
0: Yeah, I'm behind my tent. I got to let tent up. I got to be behind when I'm
3: on the phone. Odell told Samara he was talking to her from inside a tent he'd made on his bunk. It was like a blanket fort. He told her he'd put it up so he could have some privacy when he made calls from his contraband cell phone in Parchman Prison. Not surprisingly, the audio quality of the call wasn't great.
0: Hold on for a minute. Yeah, yeah. Hey, folks, be quiet. I'm it, man. Hey, I'm back.
3: We'd finally gotten in touch with Odell Hallman, the man whose testimony right now is the only piece
2: of direct evidence in the case against Curtis Flowers. And then one day in late fall, after months of doing this and reporting on the story in general, Samara was on the phone chatting away to Cookie, who was in prison at the time, and he came out with it. Odell
3: Hallman told our producer, Samara Freemark, that he actually, that Curtis Flowers had not confessed to the murders. This Odell was, you know, the, the star witness for the state saying that, you know, I was friends with Curtis. He confided with me when we were both incarcerated that he had committed the murders. And then he told Samara, like on his cell phone from prison, that he made up that testimony that was false.
0: For years, you're telling me. He killed some people here now. He ain't never told me that. That was a lie. I don't know nothing about this shit. It was all made believe. Everything was all made believe on my
2: part. Smara ended the call with Cookie and immediately phoned Madeline.
3: People have asked us about this before. Like, what's your reaction? And it's like, honestly, in that moment, my reaction is like, I have like 15 questions. Like, we're immediately critical of like, did he really, first of all, are you sure he said that? Which is such a dumb question, right? Because like, especially to another reporter, but like, how did he actually say it? It's like yes, he actually said it. Did he say it more than once? Like, did he suggest? Like, how did he say it? And so there, you you have to ask all these questions before you. you it like sinks in really. I think how important this is. What just happened? You know what? How important it was that he's saying my testimony in this death penalty case is false.
2: And there was more about Cookie. He had been presented as this great witness, but Samara and Madeline wanted to dig into his track record. What we wanted to find out was we wanted to try to
3: compile his criminal record because we wanted to see if he'd gotten any kind of deals in exchange for his testimony, like whether the prosecutor had given him any like lighter sentences or
2: anything at all. But this wasn't a case of typing the name into a computer and bringing all the records up. No. Yet again, these were jails where old records had not been logged on any computers.
3: All of the records that we were wanting in the podcasts were all technically public records. So, like, if you looked at the law of Mississippi, it would say that these are things that that we would have access to. But just because we, sh- we have access to them under the law doesn't mean that they're easy to find. And so... Um,
2: Finding these records was a challenge in a lot of cases. So they tracked down all of the strange places where these booking records were being held for Carlton County. They soon found themselves in a dusty old abandoned jail. We found ourselves in this old
3: jail. It was like a civil war, post-civil war era jail in Mississippi that was no longer used as a jail and hadn't been in a long time. But it was being used now to store some records. So the jail was mostly vacant. And if you just picture like... um like a two-story smaller jail. It's got, like, you know, some bars on some of the windows. And inside the paint is just completely peeling off the walls. There's no electricity. And then, like, there are these, like, narrow hallways that lead back to, you know, like a row of, like, maybe five jail cells. I mean, it's like a tiny jail, like in one wing. And then you'd, like, get to the end of that wing, and you'd find, like, a jail cell that was just, like, packed with boxes or filing cabinets. And so we were hauling stuff out from that jail cell into this like front entry room um where there was like a little bit more natural light like we had flashlights in there but anyways and so then we were in the like set up this little workstation and we were looking through all these documents trying to find documents that related to odell hallman this one this one super packed one
1: yeah okay cool H's. Harper, Yeah, and
3: H H's. Harper, Harris, 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 Harris.
1: They're all stuck together.
3: Paul. Odell. There he is. Date of birth, 11, 1975. This is Odell. Alias or nickname? Cookie. There he is. Build heavy. Complexion light. Occupation none. The charges, or the, the arrest was for aggravated assault on, oh, the day before Christmas Eve, twelve twenty-three ninety-two. Oh, here he is again. Odell Hallman Jr. This is from April 7th, 1993, for concealed weapon, alias or nickname Cookie. Here's another one. Odell Hallman Jr., August 14th, 1991, hold for reform school. How old is he? 16. 16. Aggravated assault. Is another one? You guys, this just keeps going.
2: Slip after slip of paper with Cookie's name on it for a whole range of charges. And this was just one county, one of seven in all the area Doug Evans presided over. So the team got to work calling jail houses at all the other counties. After months of work, they had more than a 1,000 pieces of paper, jail booking forms, police records, and when they put them all into a timeline, it was over 50 pages long and stretched back to 1988. Cookie had been involved in assaults, stabbings, aggravated burglaries, robberies. And in the weeks leading up to the day, he would tell investigators that Curtis had confessed to him. He had four major charges on his record sheet, including having a pistol illegally, selling marijuana, armed robbery, and having 132 rocks of crack cocaine in his possession. He was on a half a million pound bond. But then he told the DA about what Curtis had supposedly said to him when he'd been in prison earlier, and the drugs charges went away. He ended up serving just a year in prison for the firearms charge. More after this.
1: For full, important safety information, visit juviderm.com. So, months have
2: passed, we're late in the year, and the team have found out that Cookie might not be the expert witness he had been presented to be, that there's all kinds of issues with the route that Curtis took and what witnesses had said about him. And then, late in the year, they found something else. They were going through all the disclosure records that the DA's office had handed over to Curtis's defense teams, and they found a slip of paper, just a single sheet, that mentioned a name they hadn't come across before. Willie James Hempel. This paper just recorded that at some point, Hempel had forfeited his Miranda rights, the rights that allow you access to a lawyer and allow you to stay silent when questioned by police in the US. Who was this Hempel guy? Was he important? The jury in all of Curtis's six trials had certainly never been told much more about him than that he was asked a few questions and then let go after five minutes. But Madeline had a hunch, and now she needed to track him down. And there were many wrong turns. It turns out Willie James Hempel is a common name in that part of the world. But finally, after many false starts, they found the right guy. They realised this Willie James Hempel had a long criminal record, and he was still being booked for things. And they managed to track him down to the city of Indianapolis. So they kept checking booking records at police stations there to see if he'd ever come on the radar again. And then one day...
3: Um, our producer Natalie checks. There he is. He's in custody. And we're like, I, can't not, I cannot believe this. And he has a court date scheduled. So immediately book plane tickets. We're going to
2: Indianapolis. So they got on his flight, fly to Indianapolis, arriving at 2 a.m. And the next morning, they're there early in the courthouse. Hempel was scheduled to appear in court at 1 p.m. that day, along with 20 other people. And Parker,
3: another reporter, and I get there and we kind of survey the courthouse and we're like, this is not good for us because it seems like what's going to happen is that these people that have these a court date that day are all going to be brought in, chained together from like a back room. And then they're going to all like, then they're going to have their court appearances one right after the other. And then they're going to be like re-chained to each other and let out the same back room. So we're... So we weren't really
2: sure if we were even going to be able to, like, pass him a note. So Parker and Madeline made their way to the right courtroom. They find a spot on the bench at the back. And just as she sits down, Madeline notices a man sat about 15 feet away. We recognized him right away. It was Hempel. She couldn't believe her luck. Suddenly, Hempel rose and walked out of the courtroom. So she and Parker followed nervously. He was just going to the toilet. So they waited outside the bathroom, and when he came back, they pounced. After spending
3: so long trying to find this person, it was a weird moment of like, here he is, and I'm going to go up to him and start talking to him. And the first thing he's going to tell me is I was a suspect in the Tardy murders. But Hempel was due in court. We all sort of filed back into the courtroom and I sat down and I just, at that point, I was thinking that this is a very big deal, that this is, this could be very meaningful to Curtis's case in
2: a number of unforeseen ways. Like, I don't know, this is going to change things somehow. They arranged a better time to meet, and two days later, Madeline was sat down with Willie. And what he told her would be shocking. You know, I didn't know what he would at all what he would say about
3: why he'd been questioned, because this is someone who'd been questioned. But when law enforcement were asked about it under oath, they said, well, I don't really think it was a thing. It was like five minutes. Um, it wasn't significant. We ruled him out without doing any work at all. It was just like not a thing. And then instead, what he starts telling us is, oh, no, I was held in jail for many days. I was questioned for a long time. They took my shoes. Oh, by the way, the shoes I was wearing were these Fila Grant Hill shoes, size 9 or 10, which just so happens to be the exact same type of shoe that made these bloody shoe prints in the crime scene. Um, So the more and more he's talking,
2: it was just like sort of one surprising thing after another. This was so important because in a court case, the defence team has the right to see all the material that the prosecution has collected, so they know what they're up against. In Curtis's trials, the judges asked the DA whether there was any other information that could be of use to Curtis's defence team that he hadn't seen. And Doug Evans said, no, absolutely not. But the fact that there had been another suspect, one who was wearing the right size and type of shoes, who was known to be in the area and had a violent history, somebody that had been questioned for hours, well, that would have been useful information to know. But this revelation, this finding of Willie James Hempel, couldn't have come more last minute for the In the Dark team. We were somewhere
3: between episodes eight or nine or something, and this ended up being in episode ten. So it was, I mean, it was right on the verge. I mean, we came back and immediately turned it around, and it was in the next, basically in the next episode.
2: So at this point Madeline and the team have a lot of information and raises lots of questions about how Curtis's case was handled. And at the center of a lot of these questions is DA Doug Evans. So Madeline decides she needs to talk to him to hear his side of things and get his response to all of the things that she's found.
3: Yeah, so it was very important to try to talk to Doug Evans, the DA, um because after all, I mean if he's the person in the story with all the power, you know, he's the person, he's the person choosing to charge Curtis. But it's easier said than done. You see, Evans doesn't seem to want to talk. We had, I had written him a note asking him to call me. I hadn't heard
2: back, and so we went there. So she just rocked up to the DA's office, walking into reception and asking to see him.
3: You know, someone there said, well, he's meeting with someone, but he should be done in a little bit. She made herself comfortable in a waiting room and waited and waited. And the longer we waited, the more, Certain we were that he actually was going to talk to us in some way because someone else could have easily told us, oh, you know, he's not going to talk to you. Finally,
2: after a long wait in the doorway appears Doug Evans.
3: So he did come out and he did talk, you know, wasn't for very long. But, you know, in that brief period of time, he did say some relatively significant things. I mean, I think he communicated a fair amount of how he views the case. You know, he's confident that Curtis Flowers is guilty. He... Um, you know, wants this to be over with. He's confident that they have the right person. Uh, but there are also questions that he wouldn't answer, you know, a really basic one. Um, how certain are you that, you know, all of your witnesses told the truth? You know, he's not going to get into the question of, of whether he believes or is certain that his witnesses told the truth. Um, he kept wanting to talk off the record with me. You know, I will tell you XXX, but only if we, it's off the record. It's like, no, you're a public official. We're not going to talk off the record. It was a short interview, but in that condensed period of time, I do think it was useful. Like I am grateful that we got even that limited amount of time. Of course, like what I really wanted, what any reporter would want, um, and really I think what many members of the public would want, is to sit down and have a longer conversation. And I mean, maybe he would, I mean, my hope is still, of course, is that at some point he would agree to sit down and have that longer conversation um and talk you know I I, what I wanted to do and what I, I told him was you know to go through all of our findings like let's sit down and so
2: we can go through everything even now after the podcast has been published as far as Madeline knows Evans still hasn't listened to what they found I have not heard
3: from him he did give an interview to a local paper down in Mississippi and he said he had not listened to the
2: podcast so Madeline finally gets to meet Doug Evans but there's someone else she's still yet to meet Curtis Flowers is still on death row and over the course of her reporting, Madeline never gets to see him. I haven't talked to
3: him. Um, The prison continues to refuse to allow me to visit Curtis or to talk to him on the phone. Um, His lawyers have instructed him not to write to me. So that is all the same as it was in the podcast. But I do know from talking to his family that he is feeling some amount of um, optimism. But, you know, Curtis has always been dis- been described by his defense attorneys and family as an optimistic person, like as somebody who has not lost faith that he will be let free from prison, you know, that, that there will come a day where he's out of prison. Um, you know, he's stuck by, you know, saying, look, I'm innocent. I do not commit these murders. And he's been very steadfast in believing that one day he'll get out of prison. I know from talking to his family that he is very grateful for the work that's been done, and very optimistic about the findings of the podcast. Um, And he, of course, hopes that they'll be helpful to him in his case. And it looks like it will be.
2: Two things are happening there. One is the direct appeal of his conviction, where his lawyers will argue the conviction was unjust and should be overturned. That's going before the Supreme Court. The other is a request for post-conviction relief, which asks the court to consider new evidence that wasn't admitted at trial. That could also overturn the conviction. And now, thanks to In The Dark, the lawyers know that Odell Hallman, the state's key witness, the only piece of direct evidence that wasn't circumstantial in the case, that Odell was lying. And they also have the new statistics on just how often DA Doug Evans would strike black jurors compared to white ones. As those two cases creep through the courts, Curtis is still in prison. But there's no doubt Madeline and her team have raised some serious questions about how he ended up there. So there you go. We've looked at just a few of the amazing findings in this year-long investigation, but do go and listen to In the Dark and hear how Madeline and her team scrutinise conflicting eyewitness testimonies, find what seems to be the murder weapon, and reveal yet more issues with the way the trials were conducted. I'm Maeve McLennigan. This... Is the tip off. Our theme tune is by Dice Muse, and other music in this episode by Blue Dot Sessions and Poddington Bear.
3: Planning for your next trip?